begin a brand new series today, our Christmas series. I'm super excited about this, and I've entitled this series, All I Want for Christmas is You. Now, how many are hearing the music in your head right now, right? Christmas is a special time of year for so many reasons, but one of my favorite parts about this season is the music, and I like it all. I like the, the old school stuff. I like the new pop music. I, every year, I, I look at all the new Christmas albums that are coming out, and I listen through the entire list of these, these Christmas albums. Unless they're country, then I just know I don't like it. But <laughs> all the other ones, I'll listen through. I know you guys are judging me right now. Get over it. <laughs> no, here's the deal. I love Christmas music, and in, in fact, even in the past, I've written a review of all the different albums that are coming out, um, but you know, what I, what I find interesting is even with all these new Christmas albums, most of the music that they do on these albums are old songs. They're songs that have been written sometimes hundreds of years ago, uh, and it, it's really interesting. I don't know if it's like the nostalgia of Christmas or that people are just not putting in enough effort to writing new music and coming up with good original music these days. But most people aren't, aren't interested in, in new music, new Christmas music. But there's one song over the last 20 years or so that has kind of caught on and has kind of entered uh, the Christmas music canon. And that song is All I Want for Christmas is You. Yes. It's a song by, I'm going I'm to read you the description from Wikipedia here. This is amazing information. It's a song recorded by American singer Mariah Carey for her fourth studio album and first holiday album, Merry Christmas, in 1994. Can you believe it was that long ago? I, I said 20 years. It's actually 30 years, right? Um, written and produced by Carey and Walter Afanasif. The song was released as the lead single from the album on October 29th, 1994. And this track is an up-tempo love song that includes bell chimes and clestra and backing vocals and synthesizers. And you can all hear it in your head right now. And this song has become a Christmas standard and continues to surge in popularity each holiday season. All I Want for Christmas is you received critical acclaim, the New Yorker describing it as one of the few worthy modern additions to the holiday canon. The song has become a global success, topping the charts in 26 countries, including Australia, Canada, France, and Germany. And in 2019, it topped the US Billboard Hot 100 for the first time. Isn't that interesting? Like 27 years after it was released, it finally hit number one on the charts, thereby breaking several records, including the longest trip to number one. The following year, it topped the charts in the United Kingdom for the first time, spending a record 69 weeks in its top 40 prior to reaching number one. 69 weeks. People do listen to Christmas music all year long. I'm not the only one, <laughs> right? <laughs> Oh, I mean, it's just incredible. By 2017, it had reportedly earned $60 million in royalties. That was before it got to number one. <laughs> the title fits perfectly what I want to talk about 
with Christmas, and I'm not going to sing the lyrics or anything like that, but it fits perfectly what I want to talk about this Christmas season over the next few weeks. It's the idea of our heart and our attention and our focus being on the one thing that matters, on Jesus Christ. And when I say all I want for Christmas is you, that's what I want to, that's the truth that I want to convey as far as we talk about our, our worship of a God who loves us, our worship of a king who came to earth as a little baby. And I'm going to talk about the worship of Christmas these next few weeks. It's woven everywhere in this story as we read through Luke and as we read through Matthew and the accounts of the different things that happened as, as the birth of Christ came about um, we're going to talk about Mary this morning. Next week, we're going to talk about Zachariah and Elizabeth. We're going to talk about the shepherds on Christmas Eve, and then on Christmas Day, two people named Anna and Simeon. I can't wait to share these messages with you. But we're going to start in Luke chapter 1 this morning, in verse 26. And we're going to read through uh, this this uh, passage of scripture, and if you want to follow along in your Bible, or it'll be on the screen as well. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying. And tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing is impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord, and let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I want to give you three things about what true worship means this morning. The first one is that true worship means elevating God's sovereignty over your fears. Put yourself in Mary's shoes for a second. Uh, we read just now that she had this encounter with the angel Gabriel, and she was a little bit freaked out. That's the Paul Rizdahl translation, right? She saw this angel, and it says that she tried to discern what type of greeting this might be. That's, that's a, a very polite way of saying she was wondering what the heck this guy was doing. <laughs> like, what are you doing here? I, we don't know, like, he appeared in her house without coming through the door or anything like that. We don't know how it happened. But we know that Mary was a little bit freaked out in this process. And she, she's 
at this point, betrothed. Now, this means, uh, this is different than what we would consider an engagement in the United States. A, a betrothal is a legal agreement. So they're legally married, but not yet living together. The marriage hasn't started yet, but the contract, the agreement, has begun. They've promised to each other, and they've made this agreement together, and anything that would separate them at this point would require a divorce. And so Mary and Joseph are betrothed, but not living together, and she's a virgin still, who finds out from an angel that she's pregnant. Uh, <laughs> how many of us go straight to the problems here, right? Like, okay, her husband's going to have an issue with this, right? He's not going to be happy. He's going to be very upset. How are you going to explain this to him? Well, an angel told me that I was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Sure, Mary. Sure you were. Uh, and here's the second thing. Even if he forgives her, she's still stuck in the same town of a few hundred people, which is about how big they thought Nazareth was at this time, and all the people will know her shame and embarrassment for the rest of her life. So even if her husband believes her, which we know that, that the Lord revealed the truth to him, nobody else is going to. Here's number three, the pressure of raising deity. Okay, think about that for a second. When I had my first child, when Kayla was born, we were leaving the hospital and I had this thought, they're letting me leave with this child. <laughs> Do they know? I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> like, we have no clue. Can you imagine the pressure of raising the Son of God? Like, I mean, it's scary enough. What if I drop my kid? What if you drop Jesus? <laughs> like, you could ruin everything for all of humanity. The hope of the world is in this child, and you're responsible for raising it. That's enough pressure to kill somebody, <laughs> right? And I'm sure all these thoughts were running through Mary's head. <laughs> right? The, the, the last one I want to mention is she didn't even get to pick his name. Right? One of the coolest things about being a parent is like you get to choose the name and the angel picked it for her. Right? All of these things are probably going through Mary's head. And can I tell you something? Mary had to have some real faith that carried her through this moment. And the foundation of our worship, the way that we come to God, the way that we, we exalt his name, the foundation of that worship should be an understanding of who he is, should be an understanding of his nature and his character and how he relates to us. A loving father. In Zephaniah, it says that, that our father celebrates that he dances and sings over us. What an incredible picture of God who loves us. Second thing is that true worship begins with obedience. I love this so much. Look how Mary responds. We just read this in, in verse 38. It says, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That was her response. I would have been like, Are you out of your mind? Listen, Mr. Angel, we need to have a conversation here. Like, do you know how many problems this is going to cause me? But Mary's response was just a simple, that's what you want, God? I'm game. All right, again, Paul Rizdahl translation. <laughs> Sometimes the most powerful expression of our worship that we can offer to God is a yes. 
It's a yes. It's saying, okay, God, whatever you want, I'm going to do it. Do you know what the first instance of worship that the Bible talks about is? It's, it's not a Christmas concert at the Jerome Theater. It's not this um, magical moment where all these beautiful songs were written. It's not this powerful gathering of all the saints around the throne to, to worship God, even though that's, that's a picture that's given to us from Scripture. The first mention of worship in the Bible happens in Genesis 22 with Abraham. It's when God called Abraham to offer the son that he had been promised for many years, that he waited until he was 100 years old to have. The son that everything hinged on, that the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with Abraham. That son, he said, I want you to sacrifice him. I want you to go up on the mountain and offer that son as a sacrifice to me. And Genesis 22 tells us that Abraham went up to worship God. That was the first instance of worship in the Bible. Now, for those of us who know the rest of the story, we know that God didn't really want that sacrifice, that he was testing Abraham's heart. But the thing that he wanted from Abraham wasn't a beautiful love song. It wasn't an incredible expression of worship. The expression of worship that he desired was a willingness to place everything aside and say, God is the most important thing to me. I'm placing him first, even over my son. And his obedience was his act of worship. Wow. It's strangely parallel to this story. It didn't uh, require... Mary to do anything, like, like Abraham had to kind of take that step of faith. So to our understanding, at least, God didn't give her the option to say no in this sense. He said, you're going to be with child. And, you know, honestly, maybe she would have taken the option if it was presented to her. Mary, listen, okay, here's the choice. You can, you can have this child. Of course, it's going to cause you a lot of inconvenience, or you cannot. But listen, you can be a part of something really special here. I don't know what Mary would have chosen, but I like to believe that she would have said yes either way. But here's, here's the truth of what we know from this story. This pregnancy was coming, and her response was that of total trust in God. That requires some faith, right? That requires some understanding of the God that she serves. She said, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Listen, you can sing all the songs, right? You can even lift your hands and dance around. But if your belief in God doesn't change who you are and the way that you act, it isn't worship. The Apostle Paul reinforces this truth in Romans 12.1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. If you want to give something to God in, in an act of worship, saying, God, here's my life, here's my body, I'm yours. Mary literally said, here's my body, use it for nine months of pregnancy. That's a sacrifice, right? That's worship. 
That's the heart that we ought to have. Here's the last one. Two worshipers worship in both spirit and in truth. This is from the mouth of Jesus himself. He says this in John 4.24. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Uh, let, let me give you a translation that maybe helps us understand that a little bit more of the Paul Rizdal translation this morning. We worship God from both our heart and our head. We worship when we acknowledge who God is and what he's done. That's truth, right? When we understand who God is and we declare that truth, when we're um, in awe of who he is and what he's done, that's truth. That's that's literally something that God has done. We're worshiping him in that understanding of who he is. But we also acknowledge how we feel about God and what he means to us. Right? That's in, in our spirit. Look what Mary says in her song, and, and we'll, we'll get to this in just a bit, but I want to just read the first line to you. It says, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices. Now, I know that some of you believe that we were born without feelings, especially if you have a Scandinavian background. <laughs> and some of us, we do our best to suppress any possible uh, remnant of those nuisance feelings, okay? Um, but <laughs> Mary says this, he looked on the humble estate of his servant, and now all generations will call me blessed. Right? That's, that's her heart's response to her relationship with God. That's her recognizing what he means to her and her expressing that in her words of worship. There's, uh, there's been a movement uh, lately uh, to make worship or the act of worship a little bit less touchy-feely. Um, some have gone even as far to say that worship should be only declarative, that it should only be about God and not about us at all, and we shouldn't bring our own experiences, our own expressions into it, but that it should just be an acknowledgement of who he is. And I will say this, there, are, there is some validity to that line of thinking, but our, and I would even agree that our worship shouldn't be driven by our emotionalism, but I want to be clear about something. Your emotions, they come from God. He put them inside you. He made you feel, right? The things that are in your heart, how you feel about God is part of your worship, God didn't make you a robotic, emotionless void. He made you with a soul. And Mary's soul magnified the Lord. Ours should too. You know, uh, what's interesting is this sentiment was echoed hundreds of years before Mary was born by her great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather David. All right, he talked about his soul, and the engagement of that soul in worship. In fact, he even talked to his soul. He said, bless the Lord, O my soul. All that's within me, bless his holy name. He was talking to himself. He was stirring up worship in his heart. This is a biblical picture of worship. It's about both who God is 
and about how that makes us feel. You might say, well, uh, Paul, then, then how are you allowing your, your feelings to affect how you worship God? If God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we shouldn't uh, vary our worship based on how we're feeling that day. And I would agree with that statement. That's 100% right. And in fact, Pentecostals, one of the common things that we're known for is expressive worship, right? If you go to a Pentecostal church, you expect people to express their worship in a little bit uh, more vocal or expressive way. Uh, And if that expression is just a result of how I'm feeling in that moment, or if the chords of the song are pretty enough, or if if the song's in the right key, or, you know, if it's something that everybody's singing along with, then I'll worship the Lord. If that's your attitude, then, then your heart is wrong. I look at it differently. Uh, in fact, uh, I, I have kind of this thing that I do every morning. Um, when you wake up in the morning, it's kind of like a slow thing, right? Like you, you open your eyes and you kind of get up. And some of you are like, listen, I you know, get out of bed and I go downstairs. And until I've had my third cup of coffee, don't even talk to me. Right? I'm not a pleasant person to be around. I don't like mornings. I, I, and, and sometimes I kind of feel that way. In fact, this morning, I was having a little bit of hard time getting out of bed. But I've, I've started doing something, and I've been doing this for years, that when I'm feeling sleepy or groggy in the morning, uh, I get out of bed with conviction. Okay, I, I, I'm laying there in bed. I'm like, okay, it's time to get up now. And I force myself to open my eyes wide and wake up and I sit up quickly and I get ready to go. I say, now I'm awake. It's a new day. I choose to get up out of bed that way. And I walk downstairs and I'm alert and I'm awake and I'm alive and I'm probably annoying all the people that hate mornings, right? In fact, my wife doesn't like to talk to me in the morning, okay? She just, she's like, you're too much in the morning for me. And I, I approach my worship in the same way. Regardless of how I'm feeling, I'm going to sing. I'm going to lift my voice. I'm going to sing. I'm going to sing loudly, too. Now, I, I don't care if you can carry a tune or not. If you sound bad, Scripture doesn't tell us to make a pretty noise. It tells us to make a joyful noise. So as long as you're having a good time, let it rip. All right? That's why we have the music so loud in here so you don't have to listen to yourself, right? Let it rip. Sing from the heart that God has put inside you. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Listen, I don't lift my hands when I'm feeling it. I lift my hands because that's what scriptures told us to do. And you know what happens as I choose to sing, as I choose to lift my hands, as, as I choose to, you know, do my Scandinavian dancing, Right? Some of you know what I'm talking about, okay? As I'm making those choices consciously to say, I'm going to do this, guess what follows? My heart follows. My emotions follow, right? And now I'm worshiping the Lord in truth. The truth brings me to the place where I know I need to worship him regardless of how I feel. And in spirit, my heart follows because I've chosen to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Listen, if you take that approach, it'll change the worship experience for you. I, I, I can't sit passively by and, and watch everybody else around me worship the Lord anymore. 
I mean, sometimes I get distracted by other things, but if my heart's in the right place and I'm choosing to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, I, I get sucked in, right? I get excited. I get energized because he's a good God and he loves us and he cares about us. So let's just recap real quick here. True worship means understanding that God's sovereignty exists, that he's in control, and that no matter what we're facing, we can trust in him, that his sovereignty reigns over our fears. True worship comes from a heart of obedience, saying yes to God. It's maybe the greatest thing that we can offer God in worship, and true worship is both in spirit and in truth. You know, as Mary had this moment with the angel, the story goes on to say that she visited her cousin Elizabeth, who was also pregnant. Who the, the angel told her that, that she was going to have a child too. And so they had this amazing moment together. And they had uh, this in, incredible experience. And, and she finally had somebody that she could share this with, right? And I'm sure that, that must have been exciting for her. And scripture tells us that she wrote a song. She wrote a song and, and it lists that song of what God is doing in her heart. And we could read it this morning, uh, but last Christmas, The Chosen did a Christmas special, and they had Mary reading her song. And I thought it'd be really cool if we just watched that together. And I can't watch this without crying, so I'm going to be done talking after this. We'll worship the Lord together, but let's, let's watch this. Chapter 11. As you know, I like to treasure things in my heart. <laughs> I was shy and it felt personal between God and me. But I wish I would have shared it with Joseph. And people must know, these felt like God's words as much as my own. I can't explain it, but they did. And people must know. thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their throne and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel 
in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. It's like the song of Hannah, but even more beautiful. <laughs> <laughs>